Welcome to the Celebration Church Podcast. We are so glad you've joined us, and we hope you are encouraged by today's message. But often we don't see the grander scale of things. Every minute detail paints a piece of a larger picture. Just like the smallest drop adds to a raging river, so too is a generation emerging up. And like the trees planted alongside the river, we will offer a firm foundation on which to stand. We will expand our borders and we will show love further and greater than any have ever seen. This is how we will leave a legacy. Hey, what's up, Celebration? I hope everyone is having a great Thanksgiving weekend. You guys are in for a real treat today as we have with us a very special guest, and you're gonna hear from him in just a moment, and you're gonna really be encouraged and inspired. I wanna remind everyone, if you haven't picked up your Heart for the House brochure that talks about our expansion into 2016 and 2017, You've got to pick this up on your way out. Talks about our new campuses at Regency and, and, and Beaches, the Retreat Center, Orange Park's new building, Julington Creek expansion. So much going on. It's so, so exciting. And, and, and we're privileged to be part of God's kingdom and to be able to expand God's kingdom. And so we're asking everyone to bring their very best offering. Our, we call it our Heart for the House offering. Uh, bring your very best offering. Uh, next Sunday, December 6th. It's going to be very, very powerful. But right now, I want to introduce to you our guest speaker. It is Bob Hoskins. He's the father of Rob Hoskins. Uh, Rob is the president of One Hope. Bob, his father, is the founder of One Hope. And this man, every time I'm around this man, I just love sitting at a table and, and listening to him, hearing his stories, his, his life with Christ, his walk with God, his his ministry, he's suffered for the gospel, he's been jailed uh, for the gospel, he's almost been killed for the gospel. He's just such a tremendous, humble man of God and celebration, I know that you are gonna be blessed. So right now, celebration, I want you to stand to your feet and I want you to give the best welcome you can for Mr. Bob Hoskins. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much. What a delight to be here. What a joy to be here. You know, Rob gets all the fun. He's been coming I don't know how many times. And finally I asked Stovall, what's wrong with me? Why don't I get invited? So, but you know what, Rob couldn't stay away. He even came today when I'm here. Stand up, Rob, he's here with us today. This year I'm celebrating 72 years of full-time preaching ministry, 72 years. And I know that some of you are looking up here and you're scratching your head and you're wondering how in the world can anyone that looks so young <laughs> be so old? Well, the truth is 
that when I was seven years of age, Christ appeared to me in miraculous visitation. And I spent some six hours traveling through time and space, seeing things past, present, and things that are still to be. And the impact was so powerful that I began preaching two weeks from that night, and now it's been 72 years, and here I am still. I don't have time to go through the 70 years, but I think there's a table in the foyer with some books and some information, and you can find out more about One Hope Ministry and about Bob Hoskins' 72-year journey by visiting that table. A while back, I received a letter from a lady in which she was reflecting that she had just listened to a cassette. Now, most of you don't know what that is, but she had just listened to a cassette where I had preached the message in 1975. Wow, that's 40 years ago. And it was a message based on Genesis chapter 6. And the message was simply titled, Violence. Her observation was that what I had foreseen and foretold 40 years ago, escalating violence till the end of the age was indeed happening. In that message which I delivered in 1975, I said that violence would continue to increase and that all efforts to bring it under control would be unsuccessful. What I preached in 1975 is more true today for sure. Somehow we thought the end of the Cold War would bring a time of peace to our planet. And in reality, the post-Cold War world is many, many times more dangerous than anything that ever confronted us before. Today, the escalation of violence is evidence that what I foresaw and foretold in 1975 is indeed a reality. I can walk through the events of the rise of Al-Qaeda, the bombing and the destruction of the World Trade Center, the list of incidents from Nairobi to Benghazi to ISIS, and fill books. These international networks dedicated to revolution using violence as their method. We must also add to that the real prospect of nuclear proliferation. North Korea, now Iran, they pose threats to entire nations, to the whole world. But perhaps even more dangerous than North Korea and Iran is the availability of these kind of technologies to small terrorist groups, many of them we now understand embedded right here in our own country. The possibility exists that one madman could set off a conflagration that could destroy multiplied millions in seconds. In 1975 sermon, I said, with due respect to the then President of the United States, an organization such as the United Nation, any other, any other organization trying to bring peace, they were doomed to failure. Worldwide violence will increase because the Bible has made it clear there is no continuing future for this world system. I'm going to read from the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. And if you have your Bible or your iPhone or your iPad or whatever device you may be using, be prepared to turn over to Revelation chapter 18. I know you've heard of those preachers who preach all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Well, now you have one. Here's the reading from Genesis chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. 
So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. Now flip over to the last book, Revelation chapter 18. It would be appropriate for this message for me to read the entire 17th and 18th chapters. And when you get home and have time, I hope that you will. For the sake of brevity, I'm going to just read from chapter 18, and I'm going to edit down through that chapter, starting with verse 2. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. In the next verse, he lists all the sins of Babylon and continues in verse 8 saying, Therefore, or because of her sins, in one day her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the God who judges her. When the kings of the earth who have committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and they will mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand afar off crying, Woe, woe to you, great city, mighty city Babylon. In one hour, your doom has come. And then he goes on to say in verse 11, The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one will buy their cargoes anymore. And then he inventories all of the riches and treasures of Babylon, continuing in verse 16. Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple, scarlet, glittering with gold, stones, and pearls. In one hour, such great wealth has been brought to nothing. Every sea captain, those who travel by ship, and sailors who earn their living from the sea, stand afar off. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will exclaim, was there ever a city like this great city? May God bless the reading of his word. It is interesting and I think even ironical that for years the earth's future has been foretold not so much by preachers but rather by people representing other disciplines. We could probably fill this room with books and quotes from leaders in the fields the econo the, of economy and sociology and nuclear physics. Their prediction about what is going to happen on this planet for the most part have been very dark, foreboding. Some time ago, a leading nuclear physicist was quoted as saying that in his opinion, a future nuclear war was inevitable. And he went on to say that in such a conflict, hundreds of millions of people on this planet would perish. The fact is, ladies and gentlemen, God's word has a great deal to say about the future. Living with my family and our missionary colleagues in the Middle East, in the city of Beirut, Lebanon, during their, their most horrible civil war, I had a multiplicity of impressions. I tried during those horrendous years to sift through those impressions to see if there was a message, a lesson for me, for my family, for you. And it's interesting that the two things that were the most astonishing to me during that time are the two things we've just read about in Genesis chapter 6 and Revelation 18. Now in Genesis 6, God tells us very forthrightly why the antediluvian age, Noah's generation, was wiped out by a flood. You don't have to speculate. God's word is very clear, very plain. They have filled the earth with what? Violence. Violence. And because they have filled the earth with what? I am going to destroy them with the earth. That is it, violence. Now, in Matthew 24, 37, 
When the disciples inquired of Jesus concerning the end time, he said, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it also be in the last days. Prior to the return of the Son of Man, violence is predicted, prophesied, foretold definitely by the Word of God. Do I need to take any time this morning to prove to you that we are living in a world that is becoming increasingly and rapidly more violent? The thing that was most astonishing living in Lebanon was how the city of Beirut, which at that time had to be one of the safest cities in the world, a city where my wife and her lady friends could go anywhere, any time of the day or night without any fear, and then, and then suddenly it exploded. It started with the machine gunning of a busload of people. It escalated from there. People were actually tied alive to a rope at the end of a truck or a jeep and dragged down the street, their bodies beating and banging against the pavement until there was nothing left at the end of the rope. In Revelation 18, John gives what I find the most apt description of the demise I saw of the city of Beirut. He talks about the air being filled with the smoke of their torment. That's exactly what happened as people couldn't move their garbage, so they would throw it from their balconies down into the street below, and snipers, anybody moving, would be hit and killed by a sniper's bullet. And then when there was a lull, people would run out and pour some gasoline or kerosene and set a fire to try to keep down disease so that the burning of bodies and garbage filled the air with such smoke and such stench that even with your shutters down, your windows closed at night, very often we had to put a cloth over our mouths because of the horrible smoking stench, violence. With all due respect, I say again to the present president of the United States, to his declarations to bring world violence under control with respect to the United Nations or any agency that is interesting in working towards the control of world violence. In light of this, God's word, I say, I say on the basis of God's word, more and more violence will characterize this planet as we approach the end of the age. It will not be brought under control. It will not be brought into an orderly society. The second thing that was most astonishing was how that great city that had become not only the financial capital of the Middle East, but a financial capital of the world. With the influx of billions of petrodollars, the Lebanese lira, little known, had become the strongest currency on earth, backed 90% by gold. There were more banks in Beirut than in any other city, including Zurich, Geneva, London. Prime pieces of property sold for a higher premium than Waikiki Beach or Manhattan or the Champs-Élysées in Paris. The prosperity had such power, such strength, such momentum. Streets were choked with exotic automobiles, millions of dollars passing the casino tables every night. Men became millionaires not in days or months, in, in hours, in seconds. One signature, one deal. And there was so much momentum to this prosperity, nothing, it seemed, could ever slow it down. Nothing would impede it, and then suddenly, bam! with a suddenness that still leaves the mind reeling in disbelief, it all came to a screeching halt. I had friends who at one time were said to be worth $100 million. I had to help the family escape from Lebanon because everything they had was lost, taken, stolen, destroyed. What did the prophet say in Revelation? In one hour, it screeches to a halt. It crashes to nothing. Well. If Beirut was not this mystical Babylon, which it was not, it is probably only an example because often in Scripture, before major prophetic 
events, there is a miniature example so that he that hath an ear to hear and an eye to see can understand the times. If this Babylon wasn't Beirut, is it a city to be rebuilt on the desert of Iraq, the site of the ancient Babylon? Before all of the Iran-Iraqi war and before the collapse of Saddam Hussein, the Iraqis were building, planning to build, rebuild the city of Babylon in the desert of Iraq. Is it going to be rebuilt and then destroyed? Of course not, certainly not. Is this mystical Babylon the Roman Catholic Church of many have zealously preached over the years? Of course not. If you turn back to Revelation chapter 17, 18, two characters fill the earth stage. One is a beast, one is a woman. Bible scholars are agreed that one represents the apostate ecclesiastical system, not the Roman Catholic Church, but all apostate Christianity of which the world is filled. The other represents the world's civil system. Now, if you accept that, which almost all Bible scholars do, you begin to find answers. But first you have to go back, far, far back in history, to a place called Babel, to a place where man decided he did not need God. He decided that his system was sufficient, not only for his survival, but that his system was so fine that he could actually build a tower to God's heaven itself and actually commence the building of such a tower. And it was that rebellious spirit in the heart of man that God saw. And it was an abomination in God's sight. And so he scattered the people of Babel and he confounded their languages. Ladies and gentlemen, we are talking about the system of this world. It is man's system, from Babel to Babylon, from Greeks to the Romans. Today we still have a system man and it goes under many different names. More frequently today the new title is called secular humanism. But it's the same old system that started back at Babel. It is man saying we don't need God, we're self-sufficient, our technology, our intelligence, our highly tuned intelligence is all we really need. Prominent in recent years has been a movement designated as Kingdom Now. This is the reconstructionist movement, referred to sometimes as theonomy or dominion theology. In this theology, the idea is that the church, are you listening? Listening? The church, through the pre preaching of the gospel, can take control of the systems of the world. Now listen. The church, through its preaching, can seize control of the political, economic, ecclesiastical systems and thereby begin to legislate or through some other political process bring peace, prosperity, and prepare the way for Christ to come back. Through the efforts of the church and the preaching of the gospel, the earth would be transformed and prepared for Christ's return. This, of course, is contrary to everything the scripture teaches about the kingdom. This present world, the Bible leaves no doubt, is in travail under the domination of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. This is a mystery of how and why God allowed this to be so, but it is clear from scripture that it is the reality. No, my friends, the world is not going to get better and better through the efforts of man or even through the preaching of the gospel. It is clear that the kingdom of God has come, but it has come to individuals who receive and acknowledge Christ's lordship and only to those individuals. 
Scripture shows us that the kingdom did come with the coming of Christ. Christ spoke of it over and over again. He said that he had come and the kingdom had been inaugurated through his life, his death, his resurrection. The kingdom has made its appearance in this fallen planet that is still under the domination of sin, Satan, and death. These enemies of God are still at work. Their destruction is in the future. But in the here and now, God's kingdom, are you listening, is available to those who are in Christ Jesus. Brace yourself, because if you don't know it, if you don't know, I'm here to tell you from the authority of God's Word, ladies and gentlemen, this world and the system of this world, man's systems, man economy has no hope of survival. God's ancient prophets have foreseen and foretold the curtain will fall. The Word says the earth is going to roll up like a scroll. Peter declared that in one flash of fervent, violent, incomprehensible heat, the heavens and the earth will literally vanish and melt away. Wow, the big question. How are we to live in such a world? How are we to live on a dying planet? Should we run away and sequester ourselves in a cave or a retreat somewhere and say, I know this is going to happen, so I'm going to hide so it doesn't touch me or my family? People are doing that. Books are being written, some by so-called Christian authors, advocating, prepare yourself. You go out and buy so many pieces of gold, so many pieces of silver. You buy this nasty food that will last for 25 years in storage. And then, of course, don't forget to get yourself some guns to defend yourself. You know, in the last downturn of the economy, the most booming business was called the survival business. You buy all this stuff and you put it away so you have a place to run and hide. People build retreats in the hills. Is that how the child of God ought to live? I can tell you. I'd pulled this out of the paper recently. It's good news for those of you who have pets. They've just come out with a new survival food for pets. So you don't have to worry about your Fido or your pussycat. There's going to be food for them. I'll tell you what happened to people in Lebanon during the horrendous civil war who built themselves fortresses and stocked them with food and guns and water to survive. People knew where those places and they knew who those people were. And those were the first places that the mobs went to, killing the owners, getting the food, getting the water. Are you listening? We're talking about the system of man. It was that rebellious spirit in the heart of man that God saw. We're talking about the system that is not going to survive because God's ancient servants have declared it. And again, the question comes back, what is the answer? How are we to live? Before we can really answer that, we have to know the answer to the three questions upon which all philosophy is based. All philosophy is based on three questions. Where did we come from? Why are we here? And where are we going? 
It is said that the Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany one day stood before a classroom filled with children and pointing to a flower in his lapel, a ring on his finger, and a bird flying past the window. He asked the children of which kingdom each of them belonged, and they answered, vegetable, animal, and mineral. And I guess they got an A for the right answer. And then the Kaiser asked them another question, and it's probably the supreme question facing all humanity. He asked them, to which kingdom do you belong? And wise little school children, well-educated in the system of this world, gave him the right answer, I guess. They said animal and got an A for answering correctly. But was it the right answer? Is that the answer? Is that all? What about Jesus Christ? To which kingdom did he belong? Can you really think of Jesus just in, in, in biological terms? Look what he says about himself. When he was here in this planet, look at the record. Here it is. Discover what he said. Not once, not twice, but many times in different ways. He wanted there to be mo no misunderstanding. My kingdom, he said, is not of this world. In John 17, which we call the priestly prayer, he is praying for his disciples, not just for the group there, but for all, he said, that are going to call on me and follow me through them. All disciples of all times, Father, I thank you for all these whom you have given to me. I am praying for them, for the world has hated them. Isn't it shocking? I keep hearing Christians say, oh, isn't it awful? The world's hating us. Oh, the tribulation. Oh, they're all turning against us. Are you surprised? Jesus said the world has hated them. Why? Because they're not of this world, not of this world. What is Jesus saying? And then he repeats it. And if you understand your old tradition of first century Palestine, anytime you find Christ repeating himself, especially if it's in rapid succession, underline it, mark it, you've found a key. Jesus says again, Father, I am not praying, listen to this, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but deliver them from the evil, for they are not of this world. What in the world does he mean, not of this world? Here, am I, here I am wearing my man's warehouse suit. <laughs> Sometimes I eat Kentucky Fried Chicken, McDonald's hamburgers, drink crystal water. What does Jesus mean, not of this world? You see, there's confusion, as I've already indicated, about the subject of the kingdom. In common Christian idiom, we contrast the life of the present with that of the future by the use of the words earth and heaven. We live our bodily life here on earth, but our future salvation, we say, will be consummated in heaven. A more philosophical approach contrasts time and eternity as though they represented two different models of existence. Our present life is lived in time, while the future order will be in eternity. We see this in hymns, like when the trumpet of the Lord shall sound and time shall be no more. This concept is foreign to the biblical view of the kingdom. The biblical worldview involves a linear concept and eternity as it belongs to redemptive history is unending time. To be in Christ Jesus is to be in the kingdom of God. The idea that I'm here now and I am of this world, but that at death or the coming of Christ, I will be transformed from earth and its system to a heavenly kingdom misrepresents what the scripture is making so clear. Our problem is semantics, words. 
We say we preach, we sing, we talk about heaven. We say we are going to heaven. We understand heaven is a place. We think of heaven in geography, gates, streets, walls, trees, rivers, lakes. All the description of heaven relates to our concept of geography. And so we see ourselves now in this geography called earth, but death will come or the trumpet of God will sound and we will leave this geography, this earth, and we will go to that geography, that world, and somehow we think that heaven and the kingdom of God are one and the same and they are not. Now heaven may be a place. Heaven may be geography. But my friends, the kingdom of God is not a place. The kingdom of God is not geography. In the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, happy are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of God. Jesus uses the verb for the here, the now, the present, the immediate. Theirs is. It's not going to be. It's not in the future. Theirs is presently the kingdom of God. He didn't say when the trumpet blows, theirs will be the kingdom of God. He didn't say when they die, they will enter this place called heaven and then they will be in the kingdom. No. To be in Christ, Jesus, is to be in the kingdom of God. Now, presently, you see, Paul understood this. He tried to make it clear that when you enter by faith into Jesus Christ, you have been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, out of the kingdom of this world into God's kingdom. I'm not waiting for death to take me to the kingdom of God. I'm not waiting for the rapture to take me to the kingdom of God. My friend, when I entered by faith into Jesus Christ, at that moment of accepting his grace, I entered then the the kingdom of God. That is why Jesus said, these whom you have given me are not of this world. I have people come to me. I mean, they're actually white, trembling with fear. Oh, Brother Bob, uh, I've always believed in a pre-tribulation rapture. And now I read this book, and it says that the church is going to go through the tribulation. Or I read another book, and it said the church is going to go through three years of tribulation. And then they'll go before the, oh, God, I don't know what I would do. I, I think I won't be able to resist the mark of the beast. Please tell me, please. You want me to give you the answer? The final answer? You won't have to buy any more CDs. You won't have to buy any more books. The only true answer is right here in the Word of God. You want to know the answer to the tribulation rapture question? It does not matter. I could care less. If the rapture takes place before the tribulation or the middle of the tribulation or after the tribulation or in the tribulation, that's not the question. The question is, which kingdom do you belong to? This is what Paul understood so well. In Romans 8, Paul is practically, I can hear him, he's like shouting it out when he says, who shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? And then he starts out with tribulation. He begins, shall tribulation separate us from God, which is in Christ Jesus? And he goes on to say not only tribulation, but he says distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, nay, he says, but in all this we are more than conquerors 
verse. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things past nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate me from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. To which kingdom do you belong? The question if the rapture takes place before the tribulation, hallelujah, I'm in the kingdom of God. If the rapture takes place in the middle of the tribulation, hallelujah, I'm in the kingdom of God. If the rapture doesn't take place after the tribulation, I'm still in the kingdom of God. And if the tribulation's already over and we're in it, I'm still in the kingdom of God. The Bible speaks in such picturesque terms of how to be in Christ is to be translated out of the kingdom of this world into that eternal. We have been delivered from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of God, and it is an eternal kingdom. No, I'm not waiting for death or the rapture in that moment when by faith I confess my sin and ask Christ to become my redeemer and Lord of my life. In that one moment, a transformation took place and my citizenship was transferred. Now. This is not the fullness of the kingdom. We are simply enjoying some of the joys and delights and privileges of the kingdom, even in this present world. It does not mean, of course, that there isn't a future in which the full, complete wholeness will come. Christ by his own power, not by man's system, not by politics or economy, but Christ by his power will destroy his enemies, sin, Satan, death. And for the here and now, I'm experiencing my citizenship. I respect this country, and I respect the things for which this nation has stood. I, but I guess the old hymn says it better than anyone, in, in, in any way that I could describe it. It said, this world is not my home. I'm only passing through. We are sojourners. We should not be surprised that the world hates us, that the world system hates us. Jesus foretold it and warned that in the world we would have tribulation. He told us about it. The only question we have to answer is, to which kingdom do you belong? What can the world do to me? I feel compassion for people who tremble with fear about persecution or tribulation or hatred or sword or famine. What, will, what can the world do? What's the worst thing? Can they starve me? Can they shoot me? Can they stab me? Can they torture me? Can they kill me? Of course they can, but is that the worst thing they can do to me? What is death to the child of God anyway? We American Christians sometimes have an almost pagan, pagan, pagan attitude about death. Ever hear anyone say, oh, please for dear old, pray for dear old brother so-and-so, he's so sick, and if there isn't a miracle, he's going to die and go be with Jesus. <laughs> hey, I thought that was the ultimate we were all aiming for. I thought that's what we were living for and hoping for and praying for to be with Jesus. Is that the worst thing the world can do? Hurry my, hurry my transit to Jesus? I've been so close to death many times. I've known that within milliseconds a bullet would tear through my body, ripping the life out. A number of assassination attempts upon my life. I remember particularly one time when there was no way, no escape, it was over. I was staring right down the barrel of the, of the, of the, of the uh, revolver and knew that in any second the trigger would be pulled and life would be gone. And then that fleeting moment, as I realized that, I had one passing thought, and it was about my children, David, Rob, and Kim, and I thought, oh my goodness, they were young then. I'm not going to see how they grow up. My wife asked me later, later, what about me? You didn't think about me? I said, no, I already knew how you grew up. 
It was there just a flash, and then it was over. Are you listening? And I can tell you in that moment, I experienced the warmest, most wonderful feeling of tranquility and peace that I have ever experienced in my life. Death, you see, for the child of God is nothing more than stepping out of one dimension of the kingdom to which we belong into a fuller dimension of the same kingdom. I am in the kingdom. Death is simply stepping into the next dimension of the kingdom. Isn't it sad, sad that so many of us get so wrapped up, so swept away with this world and the system of this world, we forget really who we are and to which kingdom we belong. The things of the world have such an attraction for us that we roll our sleeves up and we're out there in the arena with the best of them, fighting, scrapping, gathering, accumulating, piling it up. Now, if you have things, don't rush off on a guilt trip. There's nothing wrong with having things. The problem is most people don't have things. Things have people. And there's a world of difference. If you have things, thank God for them and recognize the stewardship responsibility that accompanies for whom more is given, more the Bible says is required. In my life, in my life I've had it both ways. I have lived so poor, Hazel and my, our honeymoon was in Africa. Our first house was a mud hut with one room and a thatched roof with a stinky cow dung floor. I've probably eaten more chicken entrails, monkey stew, and God knows what else to kill everybody in this room. You probably can't name a tropical fever that I haven't had, dinghy, malaria, amoeba, you name it, I've had it all. I can close my eyes and feel the poverty and smell the smells. But I also in my life have experienced some pretty lush things. Some years ago, I was going to have to be in Paris, and an acquaintance asked me, where are you staying? I said, oh, I don't know. I'll find a hotel. He said, no, no, here's my card. I have a place there. Use this card. And I found myself in the Decrillion Hotel on the Place de Concorde in Gay Paris. And if you don't know, that's the top of the heap. You don't go any higher than that. I mean, if I could describe it to you, the big marble tub, I mean, all the different salts and, and uh, good smelly stuff to pour in and big, <laughs> big bathrobe and then an antique phone to call room service and double doors open and two butlers come in and start taking silver, silver lids off of the delicious French food that's been, pre been prepared but I've walked mountain trails and I've ridden bicycles and motorcycles and donkeys. But I've also been chauffeured in the back of a Rolls Royce Limited. See, I've seen both sides. I'm not talking about imagination or theory here. I'm talking about reality. And I want to tell you from living on both of these sides, not from theory, but from life experience, there's not a snap of a finger's difference from one side to the other. Jesus said it like this, a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of things which he may possess. So if you have it, thank God for it. Recognize the stewardship responsibility that has it. And if you don't have it, don't worry about it because you're already ahead of the parade. Pretty soon everybody is going to be where you are. So you're really in the lead right now. But isn't it, isn't it sad, sad, oh my gosh, it's so sad that we 
kingdom citizens get so swept up with the world and with the system of the world and the things of the world, we can actually forget who we are. Jesus said, those whom you have given me. And then he says it a second time and a third time. And finally he says, I am not asking you to take them out of the world, Father. Spare them from the evil, for they are not of this world. Well, sir, if I am not of this world, what in the world am I doing in this world? Good question, isn't it? Let me ask you this. Why was Jesus in this world? Anybody think that he just decided to go down and try some fish and wine along the shores of Galilee with his friends and sit around a bonfire passing time? Was that, was that his mission? That would be ludicrous, wouldn't it? He left no doubt. He made it clear. He wanted his disciples to understand my kingdom is not of this world. He said, I have only one reason to be here. My Father sent me. The works that I do are the works of him that sent me. They are the Father's works. He said it again. I have not to do except the will of the Father who sent me. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he hath anointed me to do his work from the manger to the cross to the resurrection. Christ's life had one mission, one priority, and that was to do the work for which the Father had sent him and finished that work. Are you listening? And in John 17, he said, Father, as you have sent me into this world, so send I those whom you have given me. And then in the oral tradition, and he repeats it several times, Father, you have sent me, so send I these. As the Father sent me, so send I you. Now I understand why I'm in this world to which I do not really belong. Why even as I experience some of the future, I am here in this present life. This system has no hope of survival. I am here because God ordained me with the divine mission. Friend, cross the rest of it out. Bottom line, if you're in Christ, you are not of this world. You've been translated in, out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the reason for your existence, are you listening? The reason for your existence is not to push and shove and accumulate an estate to pass on to your children. It's not to make some great name for yourself that will live on earth. But the one reason that we're here is to give time and energy and resource and talent and blood and life to the task that brought us here. And that task finally is let the whole world know the message of Jesus' saving grace. I think it was during the Arab-Israeli War of 1967 that I really understood the truth. We received a call from the U.S. government at our apartment in Beirut that they were forcibly demanding that all American citizens evacuate. They told us to pack enough food for 24 hours and bring one suitcase for our family. This had never happened. This was the first time. My son Robert was two, David was four. Hazel packed a suitcase, made some sandwiches, put them in a brown paper bag. We locked the door. We started down the street to the rendezvous point where they had told us to, to gather. I was carrying Robert in one arm and the suitcase in the other and Hazel had a pacer to in front of me was dragging David along who didn't want to go and she was carrying that silly sack of sandwiches and in the other arm and here we are honest to goodness evacuees refugees whatever you call it and suddenly it dawned on me hey we're leaving home everything we have in the world is there and we may never return as a matter of fact 
This was the first real home I'd had. I told you I started preaching when I was seven. I lived in guest, guest houses, uh, tourist camps, motels, hotels. And in Beirut, for the first time, we had our own apartment. I had things that people had given us over the years as we'd travel around the world. And some of those uh, things had become very valuable as, as artifacts. And suddenly, as I thought about it, I'm never going to see it again. And I begin to chuckle. Just this. <laughs> now visualize this. I mean, people are running helter-skelter. Jets are zooming overhead. Rat-a-tat-tat. Oil tanks are blowing up in the harbor. Smoke is everywhere. We're going down the road with one suitcase, sandwiches, and dragging two kids. And Hazel turns around and says, what in the world are you laughing at? And I said, Hazel, do you realize we are leaving home? Everything we have in the world is it's there, and we'll probably never see it again. She said, uh-huh, I'm asking you, why are you laughing? I said, well, I never thought of that before. It's the first time I've ever been confronted with this. And as it dawned on me, what is happening? An instant emotional response welled up inside of me, and something inside of me just shouted out, so what? And I felt so relieved to feel so what about the things of that apartment. I'm sorry, I had to chuckle. My friend, hold the things of this world ever so lightly. If you have them, thank God for them. Recognize the stewardship responsibility. We came back to Beirut. We were the first Americans to return after that war. We returned to our apartment and everything was there. We had the same experience several times over. In December of 1975, I came back and the enemies who were trying to take my life had blown our apartment up and everything was gone. I didn't laugh, not because of the things. I still felt the same way about the stuff, but because of the horror, the destruction, the bloodshed that had taken place because of that explosion. As for the things, it was the same. Now that same spring day in 1907, we had walked only a few paces further when I discovered what really matters. Are you listening? We saw people coming towards us, and we thought, people are coming this way. They're crazy. Everybody, turn around and go back. You shouldn't be going that way. Warn them. Somebody stop them. But as they came nearer, we began to recognize they were friends, Lebanese friends. More than friends, they were the first converts of that fledging church that God was birthing in the Middle East. And when they heard that we were being evacuated, they left their homes, their families, their friends. They made their way through riot-torn streets, rushing, hurrying, trying to get to us before we left to throw their arms around our necks. There was Ali, the little Muslim boy, 17 years old, that worked across the street. And he had accepted Christ only months before. He'd been kicked out of his family, lost his friends, lost his job. Because he'd accepted Christ, he was really small in stature, and he sort of jumped up into my arms, put his arm, and just sort of hung onto my neck. I didn't think he was ever going to let me go, and his body was shaking with sobs over and over again. He sobbed it out, shukran, shukran, shukran. Thank you, thank you, thank you. My friends, that's what matters. God has not promised to salvage one thing off this planet, not one thing. There won't be one stock certificate, one deed of ownership, one ounce of gold. It's all going to disappear. God is going to create a new heaven and a new earth. The only thing that God has promised to salvage from this whole system are the souls of men. That's it. That's all that will be saved. No wonder the Bible says, he that win the souls is wise. 
Isn't it foolish for those of us who are in the kingdom to spend our lives on this planet for anything other than those things that are eternal? To give priority in our thoughts, our work, our profession, our business, our finance, our stewardship, to give priority to the task of salvaging the lost before the final curtain call. It's so easy to forget to which kingdom we belong. May God help us. Father, by your Holy Spirit, remind us that we have already been transported from the kingdom of darkness into your kingdom of light that we are not of this world that is collapsing around us even as we speak. Our lives, take them, O oh God, and use them to salvage men and women and boys and girls, to salvage souls that will last forever. May that be our purpose in life as your children and your kingdom citizens, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, can we rise to our feet? Thank you so much, Pastor Bob. Gosh. We so greatly appreciate you sharing that with us today. Hey, I wanna invite you, just please, just give me two more minutes of your time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna close us in prayer. I wanna have, there's a quick response time. Don't worry, the world will be waiting for you out there in two minutes. Just let's quiet our hearts and respond to the Lord. I wanna ask you this. To which kingdom do you belong? may be here today and you know that you do not belong to God's kingdom. You do not belong to Jesus Christ. You've never prayed a prayer or asked him to be savior, your Lord. You've never entered the kingdom as Pastor Bob shared with us today. I'm here to tell you good news. It's simple. The scripture says that if we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead, we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. And in an instant, no matter where you are, in this room, throughout the building, your church online, in an instant, you're transformed into that eternal kingdom. You'll never be separated from the Lord again. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just wanna ask if that's you today, you can't remember that you ever surrendered your life to the Lord. You've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and your savior, to receive his blood, to cover all of your sins, to receive the new life that's in him. You can't remember ever doing that. Or maybe you've walked away from the Lord. Every Sunday, so many thousands of people come to Celebration Church and many of you today, you're coming home to Jesus. You've walked away from him at some point and today is your day to come home. I want to invite you, if you're in either one of those groups today, respond to the Lord. Respond to what he's speaking to you. Cross over into that kingdom. That kingdom that cannot be shaken. Of which Jesus is Lord. If you want to receive Jesus today, would you just simply slip a hand in the air real quick, no matter where you are in this room, throughout the building, throughout the world via church online. Just put your hand in the air real quick. Say, that's me, God. I want to be in your kingdom. I want my eternity to be secure. Jesus, I want you to be my Lord, my Savior. I need a fresh start with you. There's hands up all around this room. Amen. Amen. Best decision you'll ever make. The things of this world, they're, they're temporary. But your soul is eternal. Today, you're entering that kingdom which knows no end. Amen. Amen. You can put them down. I'm going to lead us in a quick prayer. Church, let's all pray this together as a declaration of our faith a declaration of our dependence on Jesus, that we are part of his kingdom. Why don't you just pray this after me? Say, dear Jesus, I love you and I trust you. 
Jesus, be my Savior. Be my Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so I can follow you with everything I've got for the rest of my life. I belong to your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Come on, church, can we put our hands together for all those making that decision today? Thank you for tuning in to today's podcast. For more information about Celebration Church or to get in touch with us, please visit celebration.org.